before I start to preach, uh, I just something, I, I've done this before when this psalm has come up. We didn't read the verse I'm going to read, but in Psalm 139, uh, the, 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 the verse after the last verse we read at the beginning uh, says, for you yourself, well, let me say this, preface this by saying this. Um, my longtime colleague, Margaret Irwin, who is the rector of All Saints Church in Palo Alto, uh, had a daughter who was going to have a baby. This is before she retired and went back to Wisconsin. So she went with her to uh, her daughter's medical appointment. And her daughter was going to have an ultrasound. And so she was with her daughter while the ultrasound was going on, and it was at the stage of her daughter's pregnancy where the head of the baby is open. It hasn't closed yet. It's open. And so she looked at the ultrasound of her future granddaughter or grandson and said, For you yourself created my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 12 of Psalm 139, there were no ultrasounds when this was written, but it's a reminder of how important it is to memorize things. And in our culture, that is not a highly sought-after commodity for a lot of reasons that aren't pernicious or anything, it just is. But it does tell us how important it is to memorize things. A few weeks ago, I told you about the YouTube video uh, at Harvard University, the Veritas Forum. And one of the participants was Sean Kelly, the uh, head of the Department of Philosophy at Harvard. And in the course of the presentation, he said, my wife's mother was raised in China. And her mother, when she was a little girl, made her memorize hundreds of lines of Chinese poetry every day. And finally, when she got to be 12 or 13 years old, she said to her mother, you know, I simply cannot do this anymore. This is so burdensome for me. I have no idea why I'm being required to do this. It takes up too much time, and I'm simply finished with this. I don't know why I have to do it. So her mother began with one of the usual things that our parents have always said to us or to me from time to time, I know, and that is, when you get older, you'll thank me for this. <laughs> right? So she said to her daughter... One of these days, something is going to come up, and one of these lines will come into your head, unbidden, and it will pertain exactly to the situation in which you find yourself. And at that moment, you will understand the importance of knowing that line, and furthermore, that you are part of a very ancient and great culture that is larger than you are. And that is of inestimable value. And so I think religious people have always found value in doing that, even though today uh, there are not very many 
lines that get memorized, but there are people who know uh, snippets from the Psalms. There are people who know snippets from uh, the, the, the Old and the New Testament, from uh, the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer. All of those things are of great value when we think about this. I've been speaking over the last several weeks about how the biblical text, the written text of both the Old and the New Testament, contains lines, uh, poetry, phrases that were deliberately put there for the purpose of communicating to illiterate people. Because most of the audience who heard the Bible read to them could not read or write and so if they understood what they were doing in terms of wishing to communicate their greatest place of safety and assurance to other people, practical wisdom that they learned over time, those poems and those phrases and so forth could be of value to them communicating this to other people who did not know how to read or write either. So it's important. Today we read from the same places we've been reading for the last few weeks, from the book of Genesis, from Paul's letter to the Romans, now we're in Romans 8, and then in Matthew's Gospel. So I'm going to preach briefly on all three of them and see in what direction they can point us. We're now reading in Genesis about Esau and Jacob and Isaac and we're moving in the story, Rachel, Rebecca's coming up. We're going to read about uh, the great history of salvation and the story of how we understand God's work in the world. And so when we read this, today we've skipped something from last week. We ended up with the birth of Jacob and Esau and of Isaac, who can't see anymore and who's Mother, whose Rebecca's favorite son is Jacob, a sensitive boy, likes to hang out with his mom in the tent. But it says in the Hebrew text that Jacob was morally innocent. So you could say to yourself, well, morally innocent means kind of guileless and innocent, you know, naive. But moral innocence also means having no moral center and having an, a clue about how to live the moral life. And we will see in the biblical text that that's exactly the way Jacob acts. In fact, he is born holding on to Esau's heel as, he comes, as Esau comes out of Rebekah. And he will spend his whole life as a clever survivor and a way of understanding how he can work the angles and how he can benefit himself. So he's engaged in now a process, a spiritual, emotional, and mental pilgrimage for himself, although he is only beginning to recognize this. And he, is a bit, he has left uh, his homeland. Isaac has said to him, uh, you need to go away, principally because his brother Esau is mad at him and wants to get him. And Rebekah has said to Isaac, I cannot be around these two Hittite wives that Esau has a second longer. They are absolutely driving me crazy. And I want you to send uh, Jacob away so that he can find a wife in our homeland. 
in Canaan. So Jacob leaves, but he's really on the run. And he finds himself in this holy place. And actually, in the biblical text, we've known it's been a holy place in various places before this. But in the story, Jacob discovers that it is, and he lays down and goes to sleep, and he has a dream where there's, it says, a ladder, but it's a staircase. And he sees the angels coming up and down, and God speaks to him and tells him that in the future he's going to be a father of a great nation, just like he told Abraham, and that his offspring will be as the dust of the earth. And Jacob listens to all of this and probably thinks, this is interesting, I haven't even got married yet. So he listens to it and he wakes up and he realizes that he's in a holy place. And so he performs an act of worship, a ritual where he takes the stone that he has been sleeping on and he turns it upright and he pours oil on it and he calls the place Beth-El. El is another word for God in the Hebrew Bible. Now, this affords, since the green season is a, is a teaching season, to say something to you about uh, the fir- first five books of the Old Testament. When I was in seminary, I was taught something called the four-source theory or hypothesis. And that is that the first five books of the Old Testament uh, were written uh, f- and proceeded from various sources, and there are four of them. J for the Yahweh source, which is about 950 BCE. E, the Eloist source, which is from about 850 BCE. D, the Deuteronomist source from about 600, just before the Babylonian exile. And P, the priestly source, which was written about 500. And since that time, there have been some nuancing and emendations to this theory. Always remember in biblical scholarship that the, uh, the situation on the ground is fluid. But today we hear in this reading from the J source, the Yahweh source, and the Eloist source. The Eloist is the scene in the dream of the staircase to heaven and the angels. Elohim is the God, the word for God that's in the mountain and in the cloud where Moses goes up and the Ten Commandments come down and it's sort of the spiritual uh, way of uh, describing and understanding God. And the J source, the Yahweh source, is the firmly historically embedded understanding of God that God is present and active to each of us and to us corporately in the world. In the story of Noah's Ark, it is Yahweh who comes and closes the door of the Ark. So he's very anthropomorphic. He's very much like a man. So we hear from those two sources, and Jacob is now beginning to cop to the fact that uh, something's going on in his life that is leading him in a direction. And so next week we'll find out about Rachel and Leah and Laban, and all of the things that he does. What we're reading now here is the great narrative. The great narrative that 
the New Testament writers knew about, and particularly Paul. This is what informed his self-understanding and his understanding as a pious Jew and how now he was rethinking this and altering his worldview by virtue of his conversion to Jesus Christ and his desire to be an exponent of who Jesus is to the Gentiles. And so we move to, to the eighth chapter of Romans today and we see that here Paul is describing something that you and I receive at our baptism and it is the Spirit of God and that the Spirit of God is on the move in human beings moving us in a direction to seek and know what God's purposes are for us, how we participate in Christ through the Spirit of God. And he says, it is this Spirit that is in each of us that enables us to pray and to center ourselves spiritually and so that we can say, Abba, Father. Abba is a very intimate term for God. And we notice that in the Gospels, Jesus always prays to God using the term Abba. And Paul says, since Jesus is the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as it says in the letter to the Hebrews, that we understand that it is this spirit that allows us to have or to approach some species of intimacy with God. So Paul says, here's the thing, we're going to be waiting. We are waiting for what he now understands based on the grand narrative that has been part of his life and how he understands this, that God is at work in Jesus making a new creation. And more to the point, you and I are all part of the new creation. We have a role to play. We don't know what the new creation is going to look like now in absolute terms. We are waiting for its coming, and we are part of this enterprise to make it so. And as the result of that, we need to, as we wait, to cultivate some sense of hope and patience. He says in this reading, For in hope we were saved, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I've said this to you before. There's two threads in Anglicanism about spirituality that have been part of our tradition. The first one I'm going to speak about comes late. It comes somewhere in the 18th century. It's called pietism. It's, it is a, a spiritual view that says we must experience, each one of us, a felt experience of God sometimes called the, the consolation. In other uh, Christian denominations, it's called being born again. But it is a felt experience of God that enables us to know we're clicked in. And the other older form of spirit, spirituality that is part of our understanding, which is one that is more congenial to me personally, is that we call it mysticism. It's the process by which the human person comes to be closer to God, to ascend to God through five things. One is called purgation, one is called emptying, one is called study, one is called discipline, and one is called patience. 
purgation is the process of purging from your habits of being and relating those aspects of your character and behavior that keep you from being centered in God. Emptying is a term that has to do with being able to be more focused and clear. And certainly that means in your prayers so that you can put to the side the sense of distraction, even if it's only temporarily. Study is to be a student of the deep things of Christian faith and belief and anything you need to be a student of to make your life better, your career better, your vocation stronger as you live. Discipline is the cultivation of the interior self-regulation that all of us need to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us on a daily basis. And patience is the realization, as Paul says today in Romans 8, that this is not going to happen on our time. You know, when is the new age going to come? I don't know. You know, we don't know. But we know that it's in the promise. And that you and I are hoping that that's so, even if we cannot see it. And that is what Paul is talking about today. In Matthew's Gospel, we have another parable. And as I said last week, we're going to be reading through the parables in Matthew, at least for a while. And we're, we need to know always three things. What did Jesus mean when he spoke the parable? What did Matthew's church understand the parable to mean? in their own circumstances, or as the German biblical scholars would say, Sitzumleben, the life situation. And finally, what value or utility does the parable have in our own day, if any? So we have a famous uh, parable in Matthew today that is unique to Matthew. It doesn't appear anybody else. So that's part of what you've heard me say before. Keep this on ice. Special M. Special material in Matthew that isn't in Luke or in Mark or in John. So it's about a guy who sows some seed in a field and in the seeds are weeds that are sown by the enemy, whatever that might mean. And it is discovered, as is normally true in these agricultural stories, it's always the case that there are weeds amongst the wheat. But you can tell the difference as these plants come to maturity. But the disciples are antsy. And they want to know uh, whether they should take these weeds out now. And the master says, don't do that because you may, might take some good, some wheat out uh, with the weeds. So wait till it comes to maturity, then harvest it all, take the weeds and separate them, and take the wheat and separate it from the weeds. Now, this is a parable, and Matthew is famous for this. This is a parable of separation, and it is a parable of judgment. And so it's important for Christian people to have some idea uh, about this issue of judgment. I th I'm sorry to say this, but I think for the jump, there's been a tendency uh, in Christian communities to focus first on what we might call right belief. 
You need to have the boxes checked or you need to understand, let's use a sound doctrine. And if you don't, you're not in. And we should be ever vigilant in searching it out so that if anybody says anything in the community that isn't sound doctrine, we 86 them. So that's one way. And Jesus is speaking, or Matthew is speaking to his own community because in his circumstances, there are people who are ready to do this. I read a commentary this week about this passage Uh, I'm just going to read it to you. However, Matthew's frequent theme of a final judgment may sound to subsequent readers, to the church originally addressed, it spoke two words clearly. First, do not fret over evildoers, for neither their present nor their future is your responsibility. I don't know why it popped into my head, but I heard someone say one time, you know, there's some people who would rather be right than happy. (laughs) So they want to make sure everybody's towing the line. And second, God will bring history to a close with justice, and the saints finally will be freed from abuse and oppression. The parable of the weeds in the wheat is therefore not a threatening, but a comforting word. And what that means is this. Whenever God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. Whenever God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And there's an ambiguity there, isn't there, that we must live in the middle of. Because to some extent, we need to be agnostic about what the future holds for all of us. The story in Genesis today is how does God choose a morally innocent individual to become now the father of Israel? And the answer to that is that God can choose whoever he wants to be the founder of Israel. You know? We spend way too much time as Christian people on our moral, thinking of our moral superiority. We should not assume that other people who don't believe like we do are morally inferior. In fact, they may be moral, morally superior to us. Because you and I aren't going to go to God or be saved by God because of our good deeds. We're going to be saved by God's grace and because he unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. So this week, just hold the thought, a little snippet that you can memorize. When God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. Amen.